welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 118 with Jathan Janov. Jathan shares one, how to breach difficult conversations with constructive confrontational questions. Two, the step-by-step to a win-win conversation. And three, the Midas Touch method to making a golden apology. So if you'd like to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items we mentioned here, you can find it over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep118. So here's a quick bit about Jathan. Having previously spent 25 years litigating workplace relationships that turned toxic, Jathan now works with employers as an organization development consultant, executive coach, and trader to improve leadership, trust, accountability, retention, and employee engagement. He's also an award-winning internationally published author whose latest book is Hard-Won Wisdom, True Stories from the Management Trenches. Here's Jathan. Jathan, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Happy to be here. Thank you. Well, one of the very first things I noticed on your website as I was taking a look around is that your logo has the word engage with an exclamation point in a speech bubble. And so I have to know if you are also a fan of Star Trek The Next Generation. Well, I am now. And the reason is I was always kind of the original fan. Oh. (laughs) You know, the original show. Okay, not the very first fan. (laughs) Yeah, but then I paid a fair amount of dough at a charitable event so that I could have my picture taken with William Shatner who was the celebrity guest. Oh, cool. Uh, and I dragged my wife along. It was never into Star Trek or TV or anything. But anyway, so we get our minute to, you know, shake hands uh, and, you know, the photographer takes your picture and thanks you very much and so on and so forth. And so I got my picture. <laughs> and let's just say that Shatner looked as if he had put on his brand new, fanciest shoes and stepped in some really nasty doggy do. And that's my picture with the great Captain Kirk. So yes, so it's a long-winded answer to your question. Uh, Yeah, I'm now a fan of the next version. (laughs) Oh, that is fun. I remember I actually read as a youngster a book entitled Make It So, Leadership Lessons from Star Trek, The Next Generation. And called me dorky, but I loved it. It was two things I really appreciated at that age, Star Trek and leadership learning. And Mm. it hit the spot, even though it was... You knew what they were trying to do, being gratuitous and tap into the audience, but it worked. I loved it. (laughs) Well, I would add a lesson that said that, you know, when people are coughing over some dough to a charitable organization, you can at least smile with the picture. Come on, Bill. (laughs) Yeah, I'm surprising. Maybe something caught him off guard. Hopefully you weren't smelly or sweaty. Well, that's it. (laughs) Maybe maybe that's where it came from. But in any event, you know, so be it. But yes, I was a longtime Trekkie fan. And actually, I liked Jean-Luc. I liked him. Yeah, make it so. Oh, yeah. Well, I found it inspiring at the time. But yeah, so cool stuff. Now, your latest book, Hard Won Wisdom, has a number of funny stories in the mix. And that's something that folks are really dig about it. Could you open us up with one of the most knee-slapping or a tale that gets a real rise out of audiences? Oh, boy. Oh, that's a tough one. You know, people say, what's your favorite story, your funniest story? And I say, you tell me. And literally, because it's sort of a jumble. Let's see. Let's go with the one night stand 
and use of email. All of us have probably had an experience where email exchanges didn't turn out the way we intended them to turn out, and this would fall in that category. This involved two employees, field service engineers for a large company, manufactured a big product. They worked out of their home, home offices, and basically on the road, they would service their equipment for their large customers. At one project, two different field service engineers were assigned. And as often happens, if you're with a work colleague on a road trip, you spend time together, meals together, you work together, and that's fine. It helps pass the time. Well, let's just say I might use names Brenda and Sheldon, not their real names, of course, worked in this fashion. Well, the uh, last night, last evening before this trip was going to end, let's just say copious amounts of alcohol were consumed, which perhaps influenced judgment. But long story short, they spent the night together. In the morning, there were very different views of the night before. Oh. On the part of Sheldon, it was, you know, to paraphrase the last line in Casablanca, I think we have the beginning of a beautiful friendship here. In the case of Brenda, it was quite different. I will never drink alcohol with a coworker again. OMG, what did I do? Now, fortunately for Brenda, as I said, they worked out of home offices. They were in different states, and she was able to avoid having to work with him and fend it off further advances. The problem that otherwise would have not existed has to do with email, a common email mistake. Well, a day after the night in question, well, and I won't elaborate, and I'll respect your audience. Without detail. Oh, you have the detail. My goodness. <laughs> oh, yes, I actually have the email. <laughs> I had the email itself. Well, let's just say that Sheldon experienced an anatomical malfunction um, oh, that Sheldon. was, you know, overcome eventually. And in this email, being the engineer that he is, he explained it in some detail, <laughs> as well as reassuring Brenda that. The aforesaid problem, she could have confidence that it would, uh, in future rendezvous, not reoccur. And so he was giving her some confidence. Of course, when Brenda saw that email, not only did she delete it and then delete it from her trash folder, she was close to picking up her laptop and throwing it into the waste can and setting it on fire. Uh, She didn't quite go that far, but that kind of shows how she viewed things differently than Sheldon. Well, that would have been the end of it. As I said, different states. How do you know all these things is what I wonder. How how do I know this? Yeah. It's based on a common email mistake. Have you ever clicked reply to an email where you changed the subject in the body of the email, but you didn't go up to the subject line and change the subject line? Hmm. How common is that? It's easy. You just click reply and then you have something else on your mind and you type it out. The email's already teed up for you. Well, in this particular case, rather than send a new email to Brenda, Sheldon had clicked reply to a business email that Brenda had sent that had to do with a particular repair question about a particular piece of company equipment. The subject line, the ray line said, repair macro assembly five. 
Sheldon clicked reply and obviously talked about repair of a different sort. Mm -hmm. Well, that again should have been the end of it, except that a couple months or more actually later, Sheldon got this idea that as he was kind of a senior lead engineer, that he had meticulously saved common repair and maintenance questions. And it would be a good idea for him to batch those up and send those to people that would benefit from that knowledge. Oh, wow. And so what he did is he scrolled through looking at subject lines and he clicked a set of message on what he thought were these common repair and maintenance questions. And then he went into his address book and clicked a whole bunch of addresses of people that he thought would benefit from this knowledge. His superiors, his reports, his colleagues, his trainees, key customers. Of course, Brenda's in that mix. And so this big batch of email goes out to this big group of recipients where you can see all their names and addresses up in the two line. Brenda sees that. She's scrolling through some of the messages and she sees repair macro assembly five. Please God, no. She clicks it. And guess what? Sheldon, and I'm convinced unintentionally, accidentally, because it sure doesn't make Sheldon look good, right. included the message, his uh, male mea culpa message to Brenda. So Brenda sees this horrid message again, but what else does she see? That her bosses, her superiors, her colleagues, her trainees, her key customer contacts, they all see it too. Wow. And then if we ever want to talk a little bit about the interesting twists and turns of the legal system, one last sort of coda on the story is the reason that I learned about this was not because of a complaint Brenda made. Instead, she dusted off her resume and quietly left the company shortly thereafter. It was another female field service engineer who Sheldon had apparently been working on that saw this message and said, enough's enough. And she complained to management and human resources. And that's how this email eventually, as an employment attorney, fell into my hands. Wild. Well, that's several lessons there associated with prudent judgment on the road and with coworkers and with alcohol and with email. And wow, that is a doozy. Thank you. Like I say, though, there are so many I mean, human beings. You know, as I say in the preface, I don't have to make stuff up. I don't need an imagination. I just need a memory and not even that good a memory because what people do, you can't make up. Well, that's so fascinating. And so I'd like to maybe zoom out a little bit. So your background is law and your firm is all about, you know, employee engagement and such. And it's interesting. I think some folks might view those as at odds with one another. Like what's fun and engaging does not have much to do with, you know, compliance and risk management, et cetera. But how do you view this world? That's a great point. And I look at it this way. I describe my journey as from OD to OD to OD. Now, when you say OD, most folks outside of law say that stands for organization development. 
you have consultants, you have coaches, you have all these learning, development, training, organization development. Well, I actually started in that version of OD back in the 1970s when I was in high school. My father was a university professor and he was an organization development consultant before there was even a term that was recognized. He essentially worked with organizations, employers, U.S. Air Force being probably the largest one on how to create organizational trust, accountability, synergy, those kinds of things. And so he would drag me along to some of his programs. And so that was kind of my first taste of what we conventionally today think of as OD. And then I went to law school. (laughs) The heck with all that. You know, organizational trust, synergy, cooperation, collaboration. Forget about it, okay? That doesn't generate billable hours. And yet, I practiced labor and employment law, first on the side of employees and unions. Then subsequently, I made a shift. And depending on your point of view, I either saw the light or was drawn to the dark side. I became a management attorney. Same issues on the side of the table. And yet, I claim for those 25 years I spent there, I remained in OD. It stood for organization dysfunction. Hmm. Because what was generating those cases, those claims, the workplace misery on which I made my living was all rooted in organization dysfunction. All the things that my father was about were when they broke down, they produced, among other casualties, employment litigation. I've now moved on from that and I've gone back to my father's OD, informed by my 25 years in the trenches the 25 years where I made a living on the other. And so if I bring something a little bit different to the table in the conventional OD world, that's what it is. The lessons, if you will, from the trenches. Intriguing. And so could you share with us, you know, what are some, you know, key principles that you find go a long way towards boosting engagement and minimizing liability at the same time? Well, I think probably... The one that I continue to talk about, and I use an analogy to skiing. I don't know if you ski or not, but this is what I see goes wrong. And I sometimes describe myself when I was practicing law that although my business card said attorney at law, that really I was more like a different kind of professional, a certain kind of medical professional, you know, which is after the yellow police tape is put up and the crowd's held back. And the victim is carefully removed from the scene, brought in on a gurney, and there I await in my scrubs, and I make the T incision and open it up. In other words, I was a coroner doing autopsies of terminal employment relationships. Oh, I see. And when you do hundreds of thousands of these, you see patterns. And one of the most common patterns that I would see, how a relationship began win-win in the workplace and ended toxic lose-lose in the United States legal system was something I would analogize to skiing. And it has to do with a natural, intuitive, seemingly self-protective instinct, which is, if you learn how to ski, as I had to learn how to ski, is that there's a natural tendency the first time you're faced on the downhill slope where you're worried about going too fast, out of control, it's an out-of-body experience, So Mother Nature says, counterbalance downhill momentum with uphill momentum. Get your weight up closer, back behind you, toward Mother Earth, wherein allegedly lies safety. 
But if you lean back on your skis and you start down a hill, what's going to happen? The very thing you want to avoid. You're going to get too fast out of control. You're going to crash. So what do instructors teach you to do? It's completely counterintuitive. They tell you to put your weight forward on your skis, forward toward the danger, toward what makes you anxious. That the only way, in fact, you can ski effectively is to learn how to use that avoidance instinct, the leaning back, as a trigger to do the exact opposite. And in my 25 years of employment litigation, including now all the work I do as an executive coach, as a consultant, as a workshop, all the different facets that I now do in my current career, that lesson continues to ring true. Oh, that's really fascinating. So can you give us some examples in practice? What does leaning forward look like? Well, what I say is, and if I'm coaching somebody or advising somebody or working with somebody and they say, you know, I have this employee that reports to me and we're just not quite hitting it on all cylinders. And I'm getting frustrated. And I'm thinking about maybe I'll talk to HR, maybe HR can talk to them, or maybe I'll wait till the annual review and I'll put something on the annual review, or maybe I just need to quietly look for a placement, you know, line somebody up and then just make a change and I'll call it a layoff, whatever it is. I'll say, well, what specifically have you said to the employee regarding your expectations and regarding the gap in what they're doing and what your expectations are? Invariably, what I'll find is little or nothing. Hints in direction, maybe some emotional frustration, an email when a face-to-face would be the best way to go. But email was easier. I just put my fingers on my keyboard. I don't have to see you, hear you, smell you, deal with you, etc. And so what I coach is, okay, Let's prepare for your face-to-face meeting that you're going to have at the earliest possible opportunity. And let's talk about what you're going to say and the questions you're going to ask. That's wait forward on skis. Oh, I hear you. It's interesting. So you're saying they've got some fear and in your experience, when they follow that fear and take a less courageous approach in addressing the situation, they end up creating more potential legal trouble for themselves. Well, and forget the legal trouble. I mean, that was just sort of, you know, bad icing on the cake. For every avoidance, for every autopsy I did, I would say based on my overall experience in workplaces and working with employers, there's thousands of relationships that didn't end up in the legal system, but they ended up lose-lose when they didn't need to be. Thousands. For every one that ended up in the legal system, there's thousands of lose-lose because of a failure to communicate. Oh, I hear you. And I totally resonate with that. And I'm seeing that. I guess I'm trying to speak directly to the fear at the same time there. So you're saying that in addition to having a higher probability of getting to a win-win by boldly, courageously facing that issue right here, right now, you're also, in fact, hurting yourself. Because I think that's a real source of the fear is like, Oh, if I say that, they're going to freak out and then I could get myself in trouble. And so you're saying, no, no, it's quite the opposite. You should go there. Yes. And along with that, there's an approach you can take that is, in my experience, guaranteed, as close as I can guarantee anything, that won't produce the result you fear. 
Well, I'm intrigued. Let's hear it. Bring it on. Okay. Well, one of the things that I coach and teach is when you talk about expectations and a gap in expectations, okay, it's not a time for emotion. The focus is on problem solving. It's also not a time to dwell in the past. Don't think of yourself as a school teacher assigning a term grade, which gives you some insight into what I think about conventional performance review systems. What you're there to do is to find out an intervention, explore an intervention by which you can align yourself with the employee on the road ahead. And it's, in fact, one of the concepts in Marshall Goldsmith, this is one of his big concepts in stakeholder-centered coaching, which I use too, is this concept of feed forward versus feedback. And the way I describe it is, you're on the highway going 70 miles an hour. Do you use your rear view mirror? Hopefully you do. But do you keep your eyes fixed and glued to the rear view mirror? Hopefully not. Where's your primary attention? Front windshield, the road ahead. It's the same thing with communicating with your employees. Yes, what they did and the impact of what they did is relevant. That's the rear view mirror. And that's perfectly legitimate to describe factually not emotionally, not in some sort of conclusory type of way. What specifically they did, what the impact was, don't stay there. And that's where so many managers get hung up. They stay fixed to the rearview mirror, shift it to the front windshield. Okay, what can we learn from this that will align us on the road ahead so that we are both successful? And when you take that approach and when you shift that paradigm. I can't tell you the number of times that managers who went into these conversations where I'm coaching them right up to the brink, you know, they don't want to go. Come on now. You can do it. You can do it. You can do it. I'm like literally almost like virtually pushing them into the room with the employee. And then they come out with this, oh my goodness. Wow. That aha moment. It was actually a constructive conversation. The employee actually took ownership of both problem and solution. We have a road ahead. Or in certain cases, where there was a discussion where the employee said, gosh, if that's really what you need, maybe I'm not the right fit. Oh, so they volunteered. Okay. When I've coached terminations and I've also conducted them and I've helped people conduct them, I generally say if you do it right, it's really not a termination. It's a mutual decision that fits not right. And it's a respectful transition. You need to find somebody that will fit what you need. And they need to find a place where they'll fit what that employer needs. And if you handle it that way, you'll be amazed at how many times that's how it plays out. And how they actually thank you for the, this is just as recent as a week ago, how they thank you for the manner that you treated them where essentially you were exiting them. Oh, that's fantastic. So a couple follow-up questions there. You know, first, I'd say I know it varies widely, widely and wildly, but could (laughs) you maybe share a percentage to further help dispel this fear? Like what proportion of the time do people, managers who are dragging that conversation, they go in there and then they exit like, you know, elated, relieved, so surprised by how easy, fun, constructive, happy it was versus they're going, oh man, I knew that was going to be brutal. And sure enough, it was. Mm-hmm. Well, it's with a caveat, it's 100%. All right. Meaning it's 100% of the time 
with the exception of when, and they'll always confess this to me, and this has actually had me refine my methods because I realized I needed to help them more than I was helping them. It wasn't enough to describe the theory and lay it out. And it's pretty close to 100% period now that I've stepped up my game as a coach and helping prepare them. But what I say with the caveat was if they came back and said, oh, that didn't go well. And I'd say, well, tell me what happened. What did you say? What did she say? What did he say? Inevitably, what I discovered was they started out down the hill, wait forward on skis, and then something made them pull back. And they started to avoid, they started to get evasive, they started to get emotional, and then you had the crash. And so what that told me was I need to step up my game in preparing them so that when that urge comes on them and I'm not there, you know, they're on the slope by themselves, that that instinct is that if it kicks back in, they're not going to give into it. And since then, it's been a long, long time since I've received feedback that said, boy, that didn't go well. And I don't attribute that. Well, I attribute that to sometimes, and this is something for us outside consultant coaches, is sometimes we have to step up our game too. It's not just they need to step up their game. We need to step up our game. And that's actually the lesson that I drew. Mm-hmm. But otherwise, I would say basically 100% of the time, it's going to go far better than what your fears tell you it'll go. Oh, that's so good. So could you maybe walk us through an example, and it doesn't have to be a full transcript, but you know, maybe an accelerated transcript of, you know, hey, we got a manager doing an intervention, sort of what do you say, and then what do you watch out for and not say so it happens well? One thing that I coach people on is what I call the constructive confrontational question. The constructive confrontational question has three components or three essential characteristics. One is it's an open-ended question. It's truly an exploratory question. It's not a yes or no question. Two is it's not a cross-examination question, which I define as somebody who did a share of cross-examining as an opinion masquerading as a question. Often it's those are yes or no. Isn't it true that? Mm -hmm. That's the common. But you can also ask an open-ended question that's cross-examining, you know. P, why'd you screw up again? <laughs> right? Open-ended. Still cross-examining. So it's truly, there's no opinion. It's truly a curiosity-based, you want to learn. And the third is you go right to the heart of it. You go right to the heart of it. And so you say, you know, Jim, Sally, whoever it is, here's what I'm seeing and it's not working. Here's the impact. You know, here's the behavior. Here's the impact. Here's my concern. And you lay it out. You don't pull any punches. It's factual. But you don't beat around the bush. You don't tell them you appreciate the fact they're always on time. You go right to the issue, especially if it's potentially going to change their status. And you say, instead of saying, you got to this or you got to that, or here's what needs to happen, you say, what do you think? How do you see it? What's your view? What do you think happened? Where do you think we need to go from here? And it's amazing how it just reframes the conversation. And so that's something that whatever it is, you fill in the blank. What, you know, it's performance, behavior, tendence, whatever it is. You point it out. You don't be around the butch. You point out it's serious. You're very concerned. If it's something that may result in their not being able to continue in their position, you say that. You know, this is, I'm concerned because 
this has to change or else we've got to get somebody in this position where we can get this. However, I want to know what you think. How do you see it? What's your view? Pure, open-ended questions. Mm, Thank you. Well, I'm wondering about a particular application of this, you know, in the realm of what you might call folks who don't seem, you know, motivated, enthusiastic, engaged, bought in, like you're just exerting basic effort. Right. Do all the same principles apply or are there any nuances or slants you'd add to that situation? You know, the basic principles would apply. It would be, you know, Sally, we need a chat. Let's talk. And of course, ideally face-to-face. Sometimes it may have to be by phone. Certainly real time. Never email, never voicemail, never text, preferably face-to-face. You know, Sally, I have a concern I want to share with you. I'm kind of sensing you're sort of going through the motions. Let me give you an example. And this is my concern. And here's what I need. And so I'm concerned about whether or not it's going to work with us. Yet I want to know how you see it. And what do you see? And how do you see it? And if there's an issue and if there's a problem and if there's something that I'm doing, that's zapping that enthusiasm or that zest or that energy, you know, one of the example that I'm giving, let me know. Permission to speak freely. Because my goal is to have... <laughs> Star Trek. <laughs> Star Trek, there you go. Permission to speak freely. Granted. And I, you know, and, but, you know, then also I got to tell a lot of managers, they say permission to speak freely. And I say, yeah, but do you, have you created an environment where they really think that? Because mm-hmm. if they don't think that, you can say it all you want. They're not going to. But that's part of where you ask an open-ended question. And also what the end in mind is, the road ahead. It's not to blame or judge. It's can we get aligned on the road ahead? You know, Sally, is there a way that you and I can work together successfully long term? Here's what I would need to see from my perspective. Now you tell me what you see and how you see it. And you might find out certain things that are going to cause you to wince. You may discover if you truly create a permission to speak freely environment, that Sally's going to tell you that you stepped on her toes, that in some meeting where she was starting to present an idea and you cut her off as the boss because you were going to embellish her idea. And ever since then, she's pulled back. Hmm. And you have to be ready for that and say, wow, you know, boss's blind spot, which you know, we all got blind spots, but the higher up you are and the longer you've been there, the bigger they are. And I can say that coaching CEOs. I've never worked with a CEO and didn't have some serious blind spots. And so the reality is, is you've got to be open to that. And if Sally tells you you embarrassed her in a meeting or you cut her off or you disempowered her, and that's why you're not seeing the zest and the enthusiasm, the engagement, you know, why she seems to be more transactional. You know, I put in my time, I get my pay, I go home, life begins. That, in fact, you have been a major cause in that problem. And if you're serious about wanting to create a win-win situation, then you've got to be aware of your own behavior and its impact. And if you are, and if they sense that you're genuine that way, it's going to work out. Either Sally's going to hit a new gear that's going to put a smile on your face, or there's going to be a mutual recognition that the fit's not right. And she's going to move along quietly and respectfully and without any fuss. And I don't even mean legal fuss. I mean just fuss fuss, not even stress fuss, much less legal fuss, which is how where the road leads back to the legal system is the stuff that I talk about is you don't even have to worry about the legal system. You get the benefits go way above and beyond that. Oh, that's excellent. So, well, now I'm curious in that exchange, you know, Sally referenced something that would seem to 
necessitate an apology or a change of approach there. So in your book, you also lay out a Midas Touch apology method. What's the story there? Well, one of the things I kind of developed this sort of interest in apologies, both initially from kind of a legal perspective, because lawyers conventionally were against clients apologizing. Why? Because they were afraid they'd be used as an admissions of fault that could be used against them in court. Mm-hmm. But there were all these studies. They started out actually in medical malpractice in the 1980s that showed that when medical providers apologized, instead of it increasing liability, it decreased it. Right. And that led to all these sorts of developments. And so I was intrigued by that. But I was also intrigued by experiences that I saw in the legal system and then also reflected in sort of personal life, how apologies made things worse. And in some cases, produced lawsuits that wouldn't have occurred but for the apology. And so I asked myself, what separates apologies that heal, that lower the temperature or extinguish the fire, and those that do the opposite? And it seems to me that, you know, the big difference maker is a very simple three-letter word. <laughs> Any guess? Three-letter word. Oh, ask. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> you on the spot. Or right, I'll spot you the first letter. It begins with a B. <laughs> B-U-T. But. But. I'm sorry, but. Well, you know what's coming after, right? It's going to be excuse, rationalization, justification, or counterattack. You know, I'm sorry, but you really are a jerk, right? Apology accepted. And so I started to sort of isolate that. And then from a coaching teaching standpoint, because the butt is hardwired in us. Mm-hmm. That's the part that we're most interested in our apologies. We want to explain. We want to justify. We want to excuse. Or we want to show them why, yes, maybe what we did wasn't so great, yet they deserved it. Or they brought it on, and which, of course, then just makes it worse. And so I asked myself, what's a way to help people avoid the butt trap? And I played around with some different things, and, you know, I get to work with people so I can experiment. And, of course, (laughs) sometimes I got to do them myself, as my wife would tell you. Uh, That's why I came up with this idea of the Midas touch as a way to discipline yourself. And the Midas touch is simply this. M stands for mistake. I stands for injury. Okay. Mistake, injury, differently, amends, stop. Midas. How does that work? Okay. Well, it says if you're doing this right, you admit you made a mistake. You did something wrong. Well, maybe they did something wrong too. Doesn't matter. You don't talk about that. You talk about the mistake you made. Injury. You don't say if I offended you. You know they were offended. <laughs> That's why the face is red. That's why they sent you that email that exploded on you. You know they're offended. Don't say if I offended you. Or like some people do, they won't even say if I offended you, if my comment offended you. Like, don't get mad at me, get mad at my comment. <laughs> okay. And then D, and this is key, differently. I'm going to do things differently. That shows you're sincere. You mean it differently. And the A, amends, means you really want to heal the relationship. And people say, well, what's an example of amends? I say, it could be anything. 
It could be a potted plant. It could be, and I've done this myself where I was the one giving the Midas touch apology where I had screwed up and offended people. Where I said, pick, have your spouse pick his or her favorite restaurant in your town. Give me the date, time, where it is, and then I'm calling them up and they're going to have my credit card. And you just have a good time out. Oh, no, it's not necessary. I said, you're not doing this. You know, this isn't for you. This is for me. <laughs> okay, this is for me. Because I need to make amends. I need to make amends. It's something concrete you do. So it reinforces when you say, I'm going to do things differently. Okay, I'm not going to repeat. In other words, the insincere apology, of course, tells you that they're just going to repeat the same behavior and then they'll apologize again. It'll just be a repeating pattern. So you know it's a bunch of hooey. And so I'm going to do things differently and I want to make this gesture for you or I want to do this. Or you just do the gesture. And then S, and this is key, S is stop. Don't say another word because that's when the temptation is going to overwhelm you because that's where the butt part comes in and you stop and it's their turn to talk. And it's really been pretty amazing. In fact, I tell audiences, I say, you know, I kind of think I'm owed an apology by some certain people and my feelings are a little hurt, but you know, there are some weddings I think I should have been invited to because people told me that they took this Midas touch apology home with them. And let's just say a, a significant other that was heading in the wrong direction, that all of a sudden it rerouted and now it's heading to the altar. So, but that's okay. I understand. But no. that's the difference. They had a limited number of seats at the reception. They had a limited number of seats, so, you know, that's okay. But that would have been a but. We had a limited number of seats. All right, well, you could have sent me a piece of cake. Come on now. Okay, get over it, Jathan. That's the power, though, of a Midas Touch apology. And also how one of the things that excites me, even though, you know, I make it very clear, I'm not a life coach. I'm not a therapist. Okay, I'm not a family counselor. And yet one of the coolest things that has kind of kept me going is the number of times that people have said that my business, employee relations, stuff, coaching, counseling, training, teaching has had a real impact outside of work in their personal lives, in their homes, in their communities. And that's pretty exciting stuff. Absolutely. Well, Jathan, this is fun. You sucked me right in. It's very, <laughs> very powerful, very engaging. I want to have a reasonably short episode, but answer me this. Is there anything else you really want to make sure you put out there before we shift gears and quickly hear about some of your favorite things? Well, I think really in between the books I've written and then if you go to my website, it'll take you to my blog and I write a blog column for Business Management Daily. In fact, the thing about the constructive confrontational question, you can get there. But, you know, basically, I like to write. I've written for HR Magazine a bunch of times. And so I would just say that, you know, the material's there. And certainly anybody can reach out to me if they want to uh, throw something by me. I'm always looking for stories. So, you know, the quid pro quo is if you want a little coaching advice or a suggestion, fine. But then you share the story with me afterwards. Totally fair. Totally fair. All right, then. <laughs> Thank you.
Yes. <laughs> 
Thank <laughs> you.